Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. All right, so we're back with another episode of Around the Coin. We have Brian on the line with me. The two of us are going to go down today with the best podcast of the year, potentially. Mm. Brian, what do you think? I uh, That's a bold claim. Let's see how it ends. But uh, <laughs> We definitely had a fun yeah. pre-show. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we always seem to. Uh, Mike uh, is enjoying you know. some pancakes this morning, just to let everybody know. So there might be some some chewing, but yeah, they're delicious. Yeah. Banana protein sprinkled with cinnamon. Ah, <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's good. We had I really enjoyed that pre-show, Brian. Um, so last week you were out in where were you skiing? Yes, I was out in Utah on my yearly pilgrimage to Deer Valley. I happen to love Deer Valley because. Of a lot of, well, a lot of reasons, but primarily, uh, my kids are learning to ski, and this is their fifth year doing it, so they're beyond there, and you know, double, double black, and uh, the younger ones on blue, and either. Deer, case, Deer Valley's all all skiing, right? It's one hundred percent skiing, and it is just an incredible, enchanted place. I mean, um, everywhere up and down the hill, uh, just a lot of really good camaraderie. Because it is 100% skiing, there's a bit of a bit of an old world elegance to it. Um, there's seems to be a, just a little bit more uh, camaraderie, like I, th- I said, because um, you, you you aren't getting as wild, right? I mean, I snowboard too, but you you know you hit a mountain much differently when you're snowboarding, and when you snowboard around skiers, there's let's face it, uh, there's a bit of tension going on all the time because they're looking at the mountain differently as they're going down. Yeah, I feel like skiers are a little easier to predict. Um, I'm actually going out next week to Montana. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to Kalispell. I think that's how I don't even know how you actually say it. Kalispell. You did it good for and, me because uh, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that's yeah, out, that's uh, out in the wilderness. What, 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 kind of, uh, what kind of hills you got there? What kind of base? Uh, you know, I, I don't even know. I know there's a ski resort there, uh, but I've never been. It's a friend of mine's cottage out there. So Love we'll it. go out. And uh, yeah, explore explore what Montana has to offer. In, enjoy the uh, enjoy the water rationing world that we're in right now. I mean, Cal- California's got so much water that we're breaching most of the water retention areas. Uh, Central California. Yeah, it's a huge problem. Huge problem. Way too much water. <laughs> no, seriously, there's so much water they don't even know what to do with it. You know, the biggest thing is that we 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 haven't built enough cisterns and enough uh, water retention reservoirs. Eighty five percent of California's water goes to the sea. Uh, right, I know. I, I it's heard absolute, that. It's absolute insanity, and, and you know we're we're still holding on to the notion that we're going to run into another water problem. Um, you know, I don't know. We'll see. But the bottom line is, retain the water you have. I mean, inject it into the ground. The easiest thing to do is is to uh, refresh the aquifers, and this doesn't seem to be the political will because uh, it is a political will to want to do it. Uh, it doesn't have to mm-hmm. be surface; yeah. it, it can be uh, aquifer injection. I, I kind of yeah, do that locally yeah. in my my own property. I've uh, injected my aquifer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really it's it's interesting. I talked about this actually at a dinner last night. Is the concept of you know when when individuals are incentivized sort of by default innately to you know to eat to sleep to have sex to live to survive and then there's this cultural adaptation on evolution to try to sustain yourself by making these complex decisions of 
you know, how, how do we how do we keep ourselves alive for multiple multiple generations? And it's not really programmed into us, right? It's it's something that you sort of have to just culturally care about. You know, how much do we each really care about how much our our children of 10 generations down the road exist, you know, or like how much attachment you have to a species, you know, uh, kind of diving down the, that's an interesting line of thought, you know, and I've studied a lot about this, uh, from an ant anthropology type of, uh, standpoint and a historical standpoint. The thing that has always driven humans together is actually not war. It's actually forming family structures and family units. The, the, let's call it the grandmother and mother wisdom of society, which is really the only reason we're here. Uh, if we didn't have that sort of wisdom, we would always be entangled in, in, mm, into something. Yeah. So what happens is yeah. society seems to tend to form around the protection and the advancement of children. And that's, that really was the first village, first family structure. Because raising kids, especially if you need a lot of them, if they're not going to survive and et cetera, really needs an infrastructure of support. And that extends to a, a greater family structure, a greater community structure. That's how organized mm-hmm. school started. That's how organized farming started. Farming yeah, yeah, farming even was started on by top women. Of, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we want to get to that. We actually, uh, before we dive into the content for today, we want to make sure we, we do our shout outs. So we have three people who have wrote great articles that we want to give credit to uh, and promote their work. The first here is Josh Pigford from Bear Metrics wrote a great article uh, called Getting Out of the Startup Rat Race that I just want to highlight, which basically, you know, if you were to sum it up, it's effectively saying there's three types of growth that startups look for, uh, or <laughs> startups experience, I should say. The first is ex- exponential, <clears throat> right? The crazy, fast-growing startup. Uh, the second is linear, and the third is no growth. And he makes a good point that there's a lot of companies that, that look for one and end up in three. They look yeah. for the exponential and end up in none. And, you know, he's basically saying, look, I'm perfectly fine growing linearly over time and building a good business. And I think that that's a, a helpful reminder for people who are, you know, sort of influenced by the, the, the culture of, you know, venture capital effectively is where the roots are of saying, you know, if we're going to get a 10x return, we need to see exponential growth to sort of uh, make up for the nine other companies that didn't work out in that, um, in that fund. So I, I think that's a, just a helpful message to get out there. I, I, uh, I agree. This, uh, I agree, Mike. And, and I think it, it needs to be reiterated, especially more in this cycle of business growth, because, you know, I've watched businesses grow in a linear pattern for, for decades and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And investors are ultimately making return on their gains uh, but maybe not in the same sense that we see in the in the, in the standard uh, Silicon Valley startup environment. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, those heightened expectations, I think, really diminish some of the greatness that's uh, really taking place out there. Yeah, and it, it kind of goes into this tangent um, theory or this uh, conversation, which we won't dive too deep into. But I've been thinking a lot personally about, which is the, the the concept of an IPO, you know, going public, and what that has meant for companies traditionally, and separating that from the financial impact that it has on companies, which is you know pr- pretty incredible the, the the impact and change that it has to the culture and the finances of company, and thinking should should there be another mechanism for going public? And there's a couple of people working on this. Uh, thinking about like a secondhand marketplace where I can go public at a much you know lower cost financially or effectively allow other people to invest in the company um, in an open market. And I, I think if that were to be true, imagine you know Home Hero or you know any company that's say imagine you're you know doing 30, 40 million a year. You're a decent sized company, but not you know not at the point where you're crushing it in the public market. There's a secondary market, so there's a, you're able to fill the the gap in funding between high you know venture capital funds and public markets. And I think if that were to be true, then you might see more of a um, a, a growth in the call it the linear type startups. You know, you could actually fund. You know, I'm picturing maybe like Meetup.com. You know, I'm not. I have no idea what the revenue is, but they seem to be one of those companies that are just in this middle ground of growth. And, you know, they're not going to IPO likely. So what, what's the end game there? And I think if you look at acquisition, IPO, or go bust, 
uh, you know, it's it's not it's not gr- those aren't great outcomes because you you may not your company may not be a good fit for either of the, either of those. Well, Mike, um, I, I think also what 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 drove this last cycle of venture capital was actually zero interest uh, capital. We ultimately the money that runs into the funds may directly or indirectly came from zero interest uh, uh, capital availability. That allows some of the capital to be not very disciplined. And so you see investments in things that look very much like what took place before. You actually wind up having an inverse psychology where there's less risk-taking and more pattern matching. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. We're in a pattern matching cycle that's breaking right now. And- the long arc of income can actually serve investors if you look through the historical uh, historical venture capital growth uh, phenomenon. It's just not going to be maybe the Google or the Facebook or uh, maybe even Apple. I mean, if you look at Apple, the real big payout in Apple wasn't in the first 10 years, first 20 years. But if you bought a 1,000 shares of Apple, IPO day, Right? Or if you own them pre-IPO as an investor and you held on to them, even into the early 2000s, you made a lot more money than any other IPO uh, in, an investor would have made in a, any other fund. Now, what does that mm-hmm. mean? What that means is that if you really do take a long-term view, there is an enormous payout. Now, I'm not saying that anybody predicted Apple. I mean, I bought IPO shares and I ever sold them. I uh, did the same thing with Google, uh, Facebook. Uh, I'm going to do that with Snap. Uh, there are uh, certain evergreen companies I have no inside knowledge of that I just know as an outside observer, although I know people that work there, uh, all of them. Um, as an outside observer, I make these assumptions based upon their arc. And those investments are incredible. Now, if you're, if you're looking for a return in 60 days, 90 months, 10 years, or whatever a VC cycle is, fine. But imagine, imagine if some of the early VCs held... 50% of their shares until Steve Jobs released the iPhone. Well, there is a company, there is a, a fund like that. It's called Berkshire Hathaways, right? <laughs> I mean, yes, Graham, and look at Warren Buffett. I think what it, probably, if not the greatest uh, overall return on investment that you could have made would be investing in uh, in, a, in, a, in a share of Berkshire Hathaway. I, I I'm actually I reading did. the, um, okay. I was going to say, I was reading the uh, uh, Warren Buffett book uh, about a, about quarter of the way through it's incredibly long but he talks about this and he talks about specifically in the book his uh selling short the dot-com boom you know 1998 99 he was he i mean he is famous for saying there's a huge different but difference between weighing and voting you know assessing the value of a company and predicting are hugely different and he says i don't predict but he broke he broke his historical precedent it, during the dot-com boom when he predicted. He effectively yeah. went on a ledge and said, I don't think this is going to pay off. I think this is a giant you know, balloon. And he, and he was right. I, I think to his credit, this is a funny, yeah. funny piece. In the book, he says, um, he makes the analogy. He says, there's no new sex. It's only the same sex done in different ways. And he says it's the same thing for business, you know? Yeah. There's no new forms of revenue. It's just a different way to look at it. And I thought that was clever. You know, and, and I, I love that brilliance. I remember living through that time. Now, I was heavily involved in some tech stocks, but when, when Warren Buffett started speaking more pro- profoundly about this, he woke me up. I mean, I, I, I probably played 20 to 30% on his side. And I did exceedingly well. Uh, there were a few stocks that I lost uh, my shirt on, but the Warren mm-hmm. Buffett bets that I made more than compensated for that. And we are kind of in that same period right now, but it's not in the public markets; it's in the private markets. And um, yes, yeah, yeah, okay. I want to. I want to. I want to jump to because yeah. we, we have we have such a great show lined up. So Nina, we. Uh, wrote this great piece on Medium we'll link to. It's called The Voice. It's just the beginning. And this complements a lot of Brian and, and, and what we've talked about in past shows. Uh, but she gives a great description, these five points on effectively where why voice is, is going to exponentially increase in awareness in society. Uh, she mentioned awareness. 
um, bad first time experience. These are things that what what might keep voice in the category of sort of niche as it is, but looking at why that would sort of break out and become real mainstream, uh, usage and sort of a default experience. You know, third, the third, well, let me me do one quote that she had, uh, which actually wasn't from her, but it was from, uh, Clifford Nassie, Stanford, um, uh, computer scientist, um, uh, from a, a speech he had given, it says speech is the most intuitive ac- activity of interaction. Infants start to recognize voice in a few hours after they're born, long before they can even recognize a human face. It's hardwired into us, and that's why I know that it's a profoundly uh, important uh, user interface of the future. And Nina kind of surfaced that, and, and she's a a UI designer at a, a Badu uh, Research who is doing some incredible uh, incredible work. Yeah, and I always remind people, you know, the Amazon is going to release updates, and, and Google the same, to their in-home products, Echo and OK Google. And when they do, they're just going to be, you know, just going to say, oh, update, and then all of a sudden she's going to be, it's like knowing somebody, and then all of a sudden they go from a two-year-old intellectual power to a 30-year-old. I mean, the, exactly. the, the rate of increase is going to be huge. Um Exactly. So I look forward to that. So the last one we want to highlight is a really special guy, Jay Wackard, who he has written, I would say, uh, let's see, on Quora, he must have at least tens of, he's got 3,000 answers on Quora, 32,000 followers. The guy is just a phenomenal writer in categories of science, specifically um, he writes physics. a lot about dark physics. Yeah, a lot about dark matter, particle physics. Uh, he works at Quora. And so we're working on we're working on getting Jay on the show actually, uh, but Jay, Jay is part of the Quora crew, and he wrote this article that Brian you found called "What Is the Hardest Part of Being a Scientist," and we thought that that was a pretty good uh, synopsis and really represented Jay's voice. And I, and I I think it also represents where we all need to be in our life. Uh, what Jay says, uh, what's the hardest part about being a scientist? The adage is that being a scientist is being wrong 99% of the time and going on with undiminished enthusiasm. You might think the goal would be to be wrong less, but doing safe science means that your changes of big breakthroughs diminish your chances of big breakthroughs diminish. So doing science is just getting used to being wrong, becoming a better scientist is being wrong in ever more subtle and interesting ways. And I think that is not just about science. This is about life. Um, this The polarity of being wrong and right is amazing to me. It's actually coming to a fever pitch throughout our society in the last five years. And a lot of that has to do with social media, social media shaming people's opinions, ideas, polarization, uh, the Helgelian dialectic, uh, you're wrong, you're right, all these different things. And it is really the pronounced effect of a society that's becoming less enlightened. And the enlightenment is what formed our society today. So getting back to Jay, Jay's a brilliant individual. He, he gave up his uh, tenure at uh, Stanford University to become an ontologist over at Quora. And he's an amazing which, individual. Which we looked into it. And, uh, and effectively, what, there's a question that says, <laughs> what is an uh, ontology architect? And effectively, it's someone who organizes the hierarchy and organization within a company. So we will uh, we will learn more about that. Um, but that is the current description yeah. of an ontology architect. We'll stick with that. Uh, and Brian, I think that was that was a really great segue, sort of into what we talked about earlier and what we want to talk about in the show today, uh, which is something we're going to throw out here, uh, which we which which we've been really interested in, sort of highlighting a you maybe do a series. I should explain. So the proposal is to do a series, call it highlighting history or the Great Thinker series, where we, where we, in each episode discuss uh, one or maybe maybe more than one people throughout history that have contributed in ways that maybe get overlooked or maybe don't get the credit they deserve or maybe people just aren't familiar with their work like they're familiar with, you know, the sort of uh, Albert Einsteins and, and, and the, the people that, you know, if you think of historical influencers in science uh, and you kind of know their work generally, maybe Ben Franklin, you know, people who are uh, high level. And I think some of the, 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 the great uh, contributors to history and science have been those that maybe just don't get the credit. And so 
what we've been thinking about doing, Brian and I, is going through and, and really talking in depth about different folks and looking at the contributions they made and the ideas that they give us uh, effectively as gifts that we use today. Absolutely. So the, Mike, um, I got to also say that not only just that, the nuances of how some of the more famous individuals really were probably misunderstood in their epoch and why they were so transformative at the time when they were um, doing their work um, about the boldness, about the, the ability to step out and be driven so much by your work and your research to be almost blind to the societal impact uh, at the moment that you're doing it. I mean, and, and, and not, in a, not in a bad way. Even along those lines, it really it really kind of goes down to the core philosophy uh, of what you just read around Jay, Jay Wacker's answer, which is, you know, what, who are people in history who were, were wrong or thought to be wrong by 99% of society and turned out to be right? You know, the people that just went so far against the grain and use that as a, you know, a representation of how, sort of how to live a life, which is to say there may be people who present ideas that just seem crazy and remembering that there were ideas in history that seemed crazy and turned out to be true. But even even and, so, and there's countless of those. Sometimes they're not even deemed crazy. Sometimes they're just de- de- uh, being dealt with boring or mundane, sort of like, uh, like uh, what we're mm-hmm. looking at with Warren Buffett. I mean, if any of us followed Warren Buffett's philosophy, probably we would never need to work another day in our life. I mean, to, to be frank about it, if we were disciplined enough to follow those basic tenets and wait and know that you plan to see that ultimately will bear fruit, you know, barring some calamity. I mean, yeah, sure. Warren has, I wouldn't say lost money. He just took longer to gain on some of his investments. But the long-term arc is he's created an incredible amount of value just by picking and choosing very boring things like Heinz ketchup or you know McDonald's or yeah. something like that. Yeah. So yeah, but it's things he understood. One one thing he said was he's like uh, investing in the stock market is like being a batter in baseball. You know, every pitch that comes is a different day. You don't have to swing. You don't have to even engage. You know, you can just wait for that sweet fastball down the middle and then swing. And, that takes uh, discipline. He, takes discipline. That takes a lot of discipline. Yeah. yeah. I mean, most of us are trained to hit at everything that comes at us, expend our energy. That's the exuberance of being youthful. Uh, there's there's something to be said about that also. Um, you know, if uh, and, and these things are are naturally the antithesis of each other. I mean, the, the useful concepts of the Silicon Valley versus the uh, conservatism of Warren Buffett. They both are extremely valid, and that's the point I'm, I think I, we're, we're ultimately going to probably make in all of this is there will always be a dichotomy. You're never going to have a monopole. You're going to have a duopole. You're going to have two sides to things, and both of them are just as valid. And the most of the world right now is concentrating on what appears to be where all the activity is, and obviously it's where we come from. It's the tech world, but... Part of the problems that we have today is because we're overly focusing on the tech world. We haven't expanded on to all the other things that history and research and life can give us to sort of mediate the problems that tech is giving to our totally. society. Yeah, totally. And almost just appreciating the continuation of education after school, right? After your you know traditional education uh, ends, you know, do people really engage with history and really continue that uh, learning? And even knowing that whatever you learn in school is going to slowly atrophy from your mind. So in the, in the category of psychotherapy, we talked about this a little earlier, uh, a, a few names popped to mind, Sigmund Freud, Anna Freud, Melanie Klein, Donald Winnicott, and John Bowlby. Yes. And the one that we, we looked at or talked about pre-show is uh, Carl Jung. And we mentioned Carl Jung uh, for a few reasons, and looking at considering him for this first, you know, sort of intro, call it an introductory podcast or episode on this highlight series, uh, highlighting historical figures. And, uh, and, and there's one quote I want to read about Carl Jung. Uh, it says, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and it will call it fate. Uh, I'm sorry, and you will call it fate. Yes. And I, and I, and I think Carl Jung just, uh, he highlights a lot of the the essence of what we're getting at here, which is that there is uh, there are things in society that appear to be 
you know, take them for granted. They are accepted by 99.9% of people, uh, but they're just a, a conscious acceptance of an idea. You know, and if you rewind the clock throughout history, there have been countless examples of where that 99% of people are wrong. I mean, everything from, I, I think 99% of the world believed Zeus and, you know, the sun was, uh, was and the moon were battling each other every day. And the, the world, world was, was I mean, the, yeah. these... It's you hear these things and they're almost so cliche they don't they don't truly sink in and and you have to think are we really any different than we were you know a thousand years ago two thousand years ago Aristotle you know one of the things he wrote about frequently was his frustration with political rhetoric was that in current debates between political leaders they would you know go back and forth and they would discuss topics but they were just talking over each other and talking past each other exactly and you'd walk out of the room and you wouldn't end up with the best decision because of this political rhetoric and he's frustrated and wouldn't couldn't understand it and he said you know uh, hundreds of years in the future you know they're going to solve this and look at now we're 2000 years later and we're still dealing with many of the same issues you know you know and 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 to go to aristotle for a moment and i want to jump into jung uh aristotle also predicted the end of democracy if we were talking past each other and labeled each other and deified and demonized each other and we are in that age today on all sides on all sides everybody's guilty of it and, uh, you know, even those people who claim that they don't take a position, uh, the, the, which there's a lot, uh, either side will polarize them by saying by not taking a position, you're on the other side. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the incredible time that we're in. But, you know, Jung, Jung is so different than Freud because I think Jung gives you tools where you can actually work your way through what he calls the self, uh, you know. He- yeah, let me, let me, let me, before you dive yeah. into it, let me just give a little uh, structured um, background on Carl Jung. So uh, Carl Gustav Jung was a Swiss uh, psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. And he was effectively given the founding credit for analytical psychology. Um, he worked, and his work has been influential not only in psychology, but also in anthropology, uh, archaeology, literature, philosophy, and religious studies. Um, he's notable research scientist at the um, different museums and you know credits all across the world. Uh, but you, like you said, his his founding thesis right is on the core being the the essence of a person, including all the sum of its parts, as opposed to the sort of Freudian interpretation, which would be dissecting individual components of the body and, and the mind, and then collecting them together. Right, well, is that I, I give you collective, an unco- collective unconscious he was yeah. uh, best known for? All right, and, and I, I, I think Freud is a very valuable uh, contributor, so I don't want to beat up on Freud. But Freud's view is, uh, let's consider a watch. We, we discover a watch. We've never seen a watch before. Um, the Freudian view would be to break the watch and then try to understand it by looking at all the different broken pieces. And that's not... That's kind of where physics is today, too, to a certain extent. You break something and you try to figure out how it works. That does not necessarily give you very deep insight. It shows you fractured shards of gears and, and, and glass and faces. You don't necessarily know what those fractures really represent because you never really saw the whole parts. Carl Jung is going about it a, a much different way. He's looking at all the parts as a collective, as a whole, and saying, this is what we are. So Jungian is, is, uh, is really based upon uh, the uh, initial concept of the archetype. Uh, the psychosomatic concept is really, uh, I don't want to get too um, esoteric, but the archetype is how we classify ourselves and people around us. And this is not theoretical. It's, I would, uh, he wouldn't say it in his time, but I would say in our time, I believe that there is a genetic heritage that all humans have and share which allow us through all cultures and all ages to define the world through the Jungian archetypes. And these Jungian archetypes are very important because it allows us to quickly ascertain friend or foe, right? There, there is a, an evolutionary re, you know, reinforcement to this, right? If you were looking at somebody at a distance, you're going to be using archetypes, Jung identified it, so I'll call it Jungian archetypes, but they've been there forever, you're identifying that individual as friend or foe. That's a classification. And this is very interesting about the period we're in right now, is that we classify out of safety and out of fear. But the archetypes that we use are real. 
they're real and they're ingrained in people's mind. You can look at, at the walls of Egyptian hieroglyphics. You have anthropomorphic uh, beings, which are really our Jungian archetypes, to be frank about it. I mean, the, the quote-unquote gods of Egypt are not really gods. They're netters. Netters are archetypical representations of the subconscious human mind and how you need to overcome them. So you have the archetype. So let's break it down. The very outer core of a human being is persona. It's a mask that every one of us have, no matter how open and honest we are. The mask is the eggshell. It allows us to protect our inner being from the outside world because the inside of us is very sensitive. It's very, very much like an egg yolk, if you will. (coughs) Excuse me. Like almost like a child, you would want to protect it. Next to the persona and somewhat intermixed and weaved is the ego. So I'm giving you the concentric circles to the self. The ego is misrepresented in modern parlance uh, as, as, you know, look at me and myself. The ego is a construct that we create that interacts with our self, our real self, and our persona on the outside. And a lot of time they look interchangeable. But the ego is really fed by a lot of different mechanisms. And you can go down the whole a Jungian, uh, you know, uh, sort of pyramid to understand how that ego uh, represents. Now, here's where it gets interesting. There's a shadow self. And this is where a lot of people think Jungian uh, belief is new age. It's not at all. It's uh, very important you have a shadow self. Uh, the, the shadow is uh, in some ways uh, uh, almost a, a, a bipolar opposite, if you will, to the ego. But that's not really what it is. It's, a, it's another layer of protection. It allows us to, to be ignorant of real facts, of real empirical evidence in front of us. Because the ego will form an idea, an opinion, based on a paradigm. We're all built on par- paradigms. are our operating system given to us by our parents and society. And it's, it's an operating system we, we absolutely will, the ego will not allow us to throw away. And we talked about some of this, but not on this level with Tor Norstanders about the user illusion. He approached it completely from the uh, scientific research. Jungian is, is more observational empiricism. So the paradigms that we form allow us to feel safe in our world so that as things come at us, we can quickly create false archetypes on whether they're good or bad. That's what we do in the politics today with most people. It's what we do about all different subjects. And sometimes it turns you so far around the very being that you think you are. Let's just say you classify yourself as open-minded and liberal and, you know, uh, tolerant. And then you actually look at your shadow self and your ego and you realize that you're actually not open-minded. You're not very liberal and you're not extremely tolerant. You've just mm. convinced your, your, your ego and your shadow self have sort of convinced you that you are. Now, next to shadow is something very, very base, and that's the anima and animus concept. This is sort of the, 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 the system of our biology. Let's call it our reptilian almost type of brain that feeds into the shadow self and the ego. These are all about protection of our inner core. Um, and, and Jung was so unique in the fact that he identified these different levels, but he was really addressing the personal transcendent unconscious and the anima and the, uh, and the animus. I don't want to get too far in, in, into this, but it's the feminine archetype and the masculine archetype. Uh, the mother wisdom that I talk about and the, uh, and the paternalistic or father wisdom. We are living in a paternalistic society. And that means that we're react, react in, reacting to things in a way that there has to be something bad that's happening and then somebody's got to go and fix it, right? Whereas the anima uh, concept or the feminine energy is much more about um, sort of a cohesive coexistence with what is. And both need to be there. there I'm not saying that we favor either, either one. What I am saying is when a society tilts too far into one or the other, and let's, let's face it, technology is nearly 100% uh, paternalistic concepts. Uh, and and it's, it, it's one of the reasons why there are challenges in, in sort of STEM subjects for females. And I'm not trying to be 
pigeon pigeonholing at all. There is, I'm just talking on a psychological level on how groups are built and how things are solved. Then finally, after we get through all of that, we get to the Jungian self. And that's where we truly are who we are. And that is informed by some of these Freudian things. What happened when we were young? Did somebody disturb us? Were we abused in some way? These are scars and things like that. And those scars rise up into the shadow self and into the ego that unfortunately make some people into psychotic or sociopathic and sociopath, uh, you know, psychopathic. And it mm. explains why a lot of us are driven. So you can't necessarily get mad at the scars because some of the, some of the most brilliant inventions and ideas come from this drive that came from some early chip on their shoulder, which is uh, really uh, an attack to the individual self. So when you look at this mm. grand circling, uh, I, we could probably put up an image. I don't have one. We have uh, essentially the unconscious is the ego, the shadow self, anima, animus, and the self. The conscious is our personality. And we already had Tor and standards tell us that our conscious is only 11 bits per second. Our unconscious is taking a few million bits per second. Right. This is the idea of like, uh, you know, you're a rider on the elephant, I think is. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, I forget who originally said that, but it was in Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, The Righteous Mind. Uh, exactly. And, exactly. And That's effectively, your, your subconscious is the elephant and you are the rider on top. So you can lean different directions. You know, if you want to work out every day. Uh, the subconscious is going to have the biggest influence there, but you can put your shoes next to your bed and, you know, you can yeah. listen to the motivating uh, YouTube video and, you know, you could you, you basically hedge, uh, hedge in the direction that you want to go. Uh, but you're right. I mean, the subconscious is really a underappreciated, dominating impact especially on our lives. Especially today, especially to the people who are driving major corporations today, because most of us. Uh, in the tech world have been influenced by STEM and, and science technology. And we look at this stuff that I just talked about with Carl Jung with a bit of disdain because it's soft science. Uh, there are no facts. Th that's what people believe. There are facts here. It's empirically demonstrated. Uh, the, the cores that Jungian, the Jungian identifications, one can, dis can dispute the explanations. They can't dis dispute that there are these cores within uh, the being. And you can even look at brain parts and you can look at the cortex, neocortex, and the limbic system, et cetera. And you can sort of say, okay, these things generally correlate, but they, they kind of don't when you look at what Tor Norstander's book talked about. I bring this stuff up because the only way out of the problems we have today is by retraining our paradigms, which feed our our ego, our shadow self, or our subconscious, and ultimately get down to the core of who we are and what we really want. Uh, most people are driven um, by you know, financial gain or a sense of um, protection of freedom uh, through mm -hmm. financial gain. And that's really yeah. the, the fear of the shadow self. The shadow self will wind up really feeding the ego uh, and ultimately your persona into defining that. And you, you, you mm. tend to see this by people who you meet that are doing exceedingly well financially, but you know every other aspect of their life is falling apart. And it's a, it's, it's a bit of a, of a dichotomy. You look at it and say, wow, this person, I've been fortunate to meet a lot of very wealthy people, multi-billionaires. You think, you know, he's brilliant. This guy's great. But the rest of their life is absolutely in turmoil. And you look at it and you say, would I call that a universal form of success? You know, now I'm not arguing no money is, you know, it, it, you know, at least money gets you in the door. But what I'm saying is you only have X number of years to be here. How do you define those years? Now, a lot of people will say, well, if you have a lot of money, I'll have a lot of influence, a lot of impact. I'm going to tell you right now, no, you, no human being that's alive today or will be alive in the next 10 years and alive the last 3,000 years will have any impact that 10,000 years from now will remember. 
that's a reality. Yeah, yeah. So, well, even even then, you know, one 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 thought on that that has been sort of um, digesting through my my consciousness or subconsciousness is the idea that does it does it really matter? And are you in a trance to think it does? Right. The idea that you, to be remembered is the goal, or to have some sort of uh, you know, legacy that ripples on, or a big statue in your name, or is that just ego driving it? Right. Think is, about all the great discoveries throughout history. You know, we, we highlight these names, right, even throughout the founding fathers, you know, George Washington and Lincoln and so on. And then, you know, science has its same credits and psychology. And, there, you know, there's these like nodes almost, for lack of a better word, that are highlighted. And, you know, Carl Jung and Freud, I mean, these guys did great work. But I think about even as great scientists have, you know, a lab full of uh, workers, who, who are the people just, if you look at the world today, I mean, Elon Musk is, is, is the node, right? It's like Elon Musk is launching spaceships and creating electric cars. But really, there are just unsung heroes that go on. And it's, it's sort of part of the human flaw that we can't quite appreciate numbers and masses, right? We centralize on core personalities and say they are the, they are the contributor. They are the driving force. And nothing to take away from the great work that those guys do. But those guys also live in a 24-hour day, right? There, there's only so much that they're going to do. And, and, and it really comes down to, you know, whoever is going to... Uh, uphold or continue Moore's law, right? The fact that batteries are getting smaller and quantum computing is becoming a reality, th- th- those are getting built by scientists that, you know, you and I, or at least me and most people, just don't know the the individuals behind that. And I think there's, there's something beautiful in just being part of that movement, right? Being in the army that, that transforms uh, life and human consciousness. And I think you don't, you know, to seek and try to create a standard around becoming that node, becoming the one person remembered throughout history, I, I think is a silly and, um, you know, ego-driven quest. And it, it really shouldn't be about that. And to drive yourself towards that end game and say that's the goal is really a, you know, it's a false false pretense uh, for life. And I, I, I don't know. That, that's that been an, a thought. And I think, you know, Freud and Jung, um, as they interacted and worked together and, you know, wrote together, and they, there was one. There was one article here I loved that talked about uh, when Carl Jung and, and and Sigmund Freud first interacted. They had a thirteen hour conversation. You know, they they sat around and talked for thirteen hours. Brian, I thought you and I talked for a long time. Thirteen hours sets a sets a new record for those guys. Um, uh, a couple other points, uh, Brian, and I, I want to highlight here because you gave a great background. Yeah. Was Young effectively? He coined the terms introvert and extrovert. So yes. Before Young, we didn't we didn't have that concept, or no. at least it wasn't no, it pronounced was, and objectified like that. It was never objectified. Um, there's there's and and look how look how soon that was in our existence. I mean, there are people alive that were alive when Carl Young was alive. This isn't like ancient history. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, yeah, no, not at all. I mean, he was, it's also, I love dates, right? So he was born in 1980, uh, sorry, 1875, died June 6th, 1961. <clears throat> he was effectively alive. You know, I mean, what, he, not effectively, he was 60 years ago from yeah. roughly where we are today. And the the idea that uh, you know, these discoveries have been made so recently in history, you have to think, like, what, what was the scenario like? Or what was the field of study for psychology and um, psychotherapy and, and the ideas of unconscious? I mean, were they, were they just not written down? I mean, effectively, he's coming into a field and cementing the ideas that are already there? Or do you give him credit for coming up with these ideas in the first place? I think, I think we have to give him credit for coming up with the uh, identification of these issues. I mean, a lot of this goes back to uh, early Greek. And um, in my view, my research, it goes back to um, uh, Egyptian and Sumerian, the Sumerians and the Egyptians. See, the Egyptians had something called the mystery schools. And, and Carl Jung referred to them a lot. And, and Jung, Jung would probably give the Egyptian mystery schools, Western uh, and, and Eastern mystery schools, most of the credit for his work. What the mystery schools were, and today a lot of people say, oh, this is that all that esoteric stuff. No, it wasn't. What it was, was allowing the individual, the initiate, to understand themselves through a, through a process of education, not the, not the university system that we have today, which is really more or less a, um, a a trade school. I mean, universities today are more or less trade schools. They show you how to have a trade, and you kind of go on. What what the mystery schools were, were giving you a universal capability to solve universal problems. 
I'll give you an example. We, we, we think we're going to remember people's names moving ahead. Do you remember the name Thales? You know, a guy named Thales? Thales? Yeah. Sure. All right. Most people don't. <laughs> but this guy single-handedly invented weather research. He invented uh, all sorts of political engineering he, concepts. He should be our next, uh, our next uh, highlight for this series. Yeah. All right. That's, but, a, that's, a, that's a great guy. Yeah. So, so, but a lot of people don't recognize this stuff because history is not taught. It's not part of central STEM research. Learning what's in the past it doesn't it really inform the future. That's sort of the concept that's being put out there. I guess my point is when you really start looking at what's, our society is doing and what we're training for. These early cultures said, first off, you can't be a, a pharaoh. A pharaoh really wasn't a king. There's a, I won't go down a whole road. It, it's such a childish you know, representation of the Greek version of Egypt. Nothing wrong with the Greeks, but when the Greeks took over Egypt, it became something else. And most historians and most people's information on Egypt come from the Greek uh, Cleopatra era, uh, Hellenistic period of Egypt. And that's, they barely knew what Egypt was about. They just took over a country and tried to operate its systems. But the early mystery schools, you couldn't become a pharaoh unless you dedicated 25 years of initiation. And this isn't hazing initiation from a, you know, a fraternity. This is literally using the mind to study the mind and understanding where that leads you. All of the science, all of our great advancements in society have come through those sorts of conceptual ideas. And when the Renaissance came and the Enlightenment, we were really actually not doing anything new. We were taking fragments and shattered pieces from the mystery schools, the idea of the university. The university wasn't there to teach you. It was there for you to challenge the existing system. That's what a, a doctor, doctoral dissertation is designed to upend what is actually considered the current state. That's what real science was about. Most doctoral theses have nothing to do with upending. Yeah. Yeah, so, you mentioned that. Um, actually, uh, on, the, on that thought, though, uh, Jung's doctoral dissertation explored um, what he called the, the occult, right? The supernatural or mystical yeah. or magical beliefs, um, which he was very much interested in. I think uh, contrarian to popular belief or maybe just against Freud, um, opposing viewpoints. Freud was very, you know, very much an objectivist, uh, looked at things in a, I think, fairly materialistic way as yeah. far as existential beliefs. Jung, on the other hand, was very much interested in the spirituality and, and, and really described spirituality as a core component to a healthy human life. And when he wrote his doctoral dissertation on this, it was called uh, 1902. It was called "On the Psychology and Pathology of So-Called Oculent Phenomena." Yes, and uh, it was Beautiful really interesting. I, yeah, yeah. We'll include it in the show notes, and it's certainly worth diving through to understand what people thought about. It. He studied uh, Christianity and, and and Buddhism and, um, and and you know all the all the religions at yes, the time absolutely. that we have today. You know, not much different. And he basically described this. Uh, connection, and he identified with being spiritual. I don't think as much connecting on an individual religion basis, but really sought to connect the oneself with the existential, with the higher level, as you know you might call God. But I think he's he's describing religion as this interpretation of this deeper feeling um, innately to human beings. The, well, the materialist's view of this would be that is a biological system that has thought that doesn't quite understand how it arrived here. Therefore, it creates mysticism to try to explain his existence. Freud is going the other way around and saying, you know, and, and again, he's not pro-God, anti-God. This is not about that. It's about actually trying to understand phenomena that we can't currently explain with today's, uh, today's system. A lot of people don't understand. Alexander Graham Bell, uh, you know, obviously created the, the telephone. Uh, his original reason for inventing the telephone was to speak to people who have died. And wow, that that's amazing, you know? Yeah. Just that that that, that, that would be a driving force uh, to, to go for. I mean, this goes right in line with the previous theory, which is, you know, being a scientist is being wrong 99% of the time, but having the confidence or the guts or, you know, whatever you want to call it to proceed and just keep marching forward to try to explain or, you know, every one in a hundred breakthroughs, you know, just change history. And even if you're wrong 99% of the time, 
you know, I, I don't remember the last time I picked up a telephone and talked to someone who was, you know, deceased, but, you know, maybe there's a case well, you <laughs> where know, people do. It's interesting. In that epoch, very learned individuals had no problems going to seances. And again, we laugh at that and we say, my God. Gosh, these people—they—they they were, they were so bright, but they were—they were believing these uh, mediums could talk uh, talk to others. Now, <clears throat> I'm not going to state an opinion one way or another, but what I am saying is that if I took a television set to somebody who was, um, let's say, mid 1800s, and let's just say I had a signal, or let's just say it's a VCR or a DVD player, or or an iPod, whatever, uh, you know, an iPhone, and I'm playing a video image to them. Their relativity would be to be would be to explain what they're seeing with what they already know in their life. So they would say that there are flat people that are living inside this little thing that you call an iPhone. They don't even know what a phone is, right? But they're seeing pictures move around, and you know they might understand the concept of a photograph, but this is way beyond that because it's talking to them, it's moving around, it's doing things, and. Whenever we are on the edge, the abyss of new knowledge, it is always going to look like somebody's ready to laugh at you, right? So fortunately, in that epoch, there wasn't social media, there wasn't shaming, there wasn't very much labeling. And so these people went around and they actually felt comfortable. This is what enlightenment is about. You feel comfortable in having a, 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 a view that's contrarian to society, maybe as a whole. So they held these different groups and he said, you know something? I'm a mechanistic person. I think that what that medium is doing, I can do with an electronic item. And again, he was a researcher. Now, the thing that most people don't tell you about Bell is that he was 100% convinced he was talking to people who were deceased because their information that was being transferred to him at the moment could only have been given by somebody who was in fact that person uh, because there, would, there was no internet. There was no way to look things up. And these people were... Wait, so he's, he's, he's thinking that the messages, the telephone? I mean, no, he's talking no. to people. So. What, what, what started him on the idea of these communication systems was to try to create an, a common, for the common person, the ability to do what these mediums were doing back at the turn oh, of the century. Oh, I see. And he was already convinced, him and his wife are already convinced that this stuff exists and, and, and so on. And again, I don't want to go down the occult or whatever. All occult means is unseen. And all unseen means is you don't have a tool necessarily to see it yet, right? Every, every form of virus and bacteria was occulted or occult until the microscope was invented. And then you could see it. And it's important to keep that in your mind whenever you have the, the reaction to laugh at the crazy ones, if you will, the people on the edge of this stuff. Um, if we can create a society that supports those people more, uh, I think we'll have our society moving forward much faster. Today, I don't think that there's been a time in modern history where this has been more under assault. Um, we're, we're now in a, in, a, in a world where we label everything immediately because we don't have the time to figure it out. So we shortchange everything. We label it. And that's why me, I think we're doing this, Mike, is I think we're, we're sorting, sort of being the zig to the zag of what's going on in the world today. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, totally. I, I think of it as, you know, this podcast is a gift for you know, us to talk to each other and then also to hopefully give some, some form of ideas to people. I think, you know, through discussing these kind of topics in depth, you come to sort, sort of um, synthesis, right? Some, some conclusions. And these conclusions are not obvious, right? The fact that, you know, how do you, how do you digest the political environment today? How do you interpret it? Is it, is it terrible? Is it, is it totally fine? Is it, you know... How, how do you how do you make the most of it? And I think rewinding the clock and looking at past influencers on society and past societies and the effect that that has had, I think those are just so that's such an important um, contributing factor. And you know, I think if Freud were alive today, right, the question would be what what influence does he have? Or you know, he's on this podcast right now. I, I wasn't able to get him; he was busy this weekend. <laughs> but if we were on the show, what, what would he say? Right? If would he look at this environment and say, "Listen, this is just." 
you know, purely, um, you know, it's human all, beings acting all, in their you know, primal self. state and shadow. Sh- yeah. Shadow self. Yeah. yeah. And what, what, what we have huh. done is we've degenerated into a shadow consciousness on a, on a massive scale. And it can happen because we're all connected through these social networks. It was very difficult to do it during the TV and radio era <clears throat> on a mass scale. It's actually much easier to do it now. And when you're in a shadow self, you get surprised, right? What happened during the election? How did that happen? I didn't know anybody who would vote for that guy. How did it happen? Yet it happened. You know, what I'm trying to say is part of the paradigms that we've created in our life and part of the editor's table that Tor Norstander talks about, our subconscious is editing out the true reality that's taking place all around us. And we don't want to hear it. So the way we go to our safety, the way the animus uh, and, and the shadow self and the ego work primarily is that we have to quickly label something and we have to call them a liberal or uh, a Democrat or a Republican or conservative. Right, exactly. And, sure. And that allows our shadow self to feel safe, our ego to feel safe and the paradigms that we're believing in to be right. And the problem is they probably aren't unless you've actually done work to, to, to train your subconscious like Tor discovered through all that scientific research, not talking about young because a lot of people are materialistic, uh, sorry, materialists that listen to us. And I am also, but, um, you know, so if you go to the materialist mechanistic view, the brain absolutely cannot handle all the inputs that it's taking, especially right now when it's being highlighted the only thing that can happen is our subconscious has to edit away and give us a cohesive worldview that fits what we want the world to be like. And that's, that's what Jungian was talking about, all these different layers and shells. Now, the problem with that is it's probably wrong. If what you're seeing in the world today is really distressing you, I, I have to tell you, the, the paradigm you're working under is probably wrong. And that's not a bad yeah. thing. You know, remember, let, what, let me, uh, what, what did Jay Wacker say? Most of science is about being humble enough to accept the wrong view. Yeah. I want to read this piece. I think you're, you're spot on there. I agree. Uh, this was the uh, Carl Jung's uh, political views, views on the state specifically. Sure. Jung stated uh, and stressed the importance of individual rights in a person's relation to the state society. And uh, he saw that the state was treated as a, quote, a quasi-animate personality from whom everything is expected, end quote. <laughs> but that personality was only camouflage for individuals who know how to manipulate it. And he referred to the state as a form of slavery. He also thought that the state, uh, quote, swallowed up people's religious forces and therefore that the state had taken the place of God, making it comparable to a religion in which uh, state slavery is a a form of worship. Young observed that state uh, stage acts of the state are comparable to religious displays, if you think about it, right? Um, Brass bands, flags, banners, parades, monster demonstrations. They're no different uh, different in principle to the the processes and the, you know, canades of fire to scare off the demons. Um, From Young's perspective, this replacement of God with the state in a mass society led to the dislocation of of religious drive and resulted in the same... uh, same, um, uh, sort of like uh, fantasism of the church states in the dark ages, wherein the more the state is worshipped, the more freedom and morality are suppressed. This ultimately leaves the individual uh, psychi- uh, uh, um, effectively underdeveloped. Um, yes. Psychology would say that, you know, when, you, when you're in that state, your you're, uh, psychology, what's the word I'm looking for? Psychology. Um, Psychology is underdeveloped with extreme feelings of marginalization. And I think that's an, an interesting perspective Sounds on Young's view. Sounds very modern, doesn't it? You, right? Yeah, it, it, it certainly it, does. It, it, it almost, when, when I, I read that sometimes to my friends, and when I read that, they get, you know, they're really sort of like uh, the hair stand up and they're like, wow, this is, this last couple of weeks, major universities have um, safe spaces. Uh, little places where you can drink hot chocolate and hug each other, you know, uh, safety dogs that you can go to because the world is scary. Mike, 
this is that undeveloped thing that Jung had talked and warned us about almost over 50, 60 years, 70 years ago. Um, if you mm. look at what's going on within, and I'm, I'm not saying, I don't, I don't want to get into the politics of the state as religion, but I, anybody listening, draw your own conclusions. And, and, and Jung is not saying that you need, you know, the, the religious aspects that we've seen in society, whether it be, uh, you know, Judeo-Christian or Islamic-based uh, systems or Buddhist. What he's saying is the meaning of life, the meaning that you're here for, um, if, if it's not formed by you, it's formed by the greater society, therefore the state. And what happens is you are left empty. And when you're left empty, then you are essentially a wisp that's flowing in the wind in any direction, and you're going to be pulled in this direction and pulled in that direction. And that explains the state of affairs today where people are, let's get mad at what he did. He just did another executive order. Let's get mad at Hillary. Let's get mad at uh, Mr. Uh, uh, you know, President Obama. All of these things are the whole animus, anima, animus dualities and the shadow self and ego all battling inside of herself. One could say it was on purpose. You can get a conspiratorial. Others can say that it's just the nature. But once you lose meaning, and that's what this is all about. See, a lot of people attribute this to spiritual and you know religious thought. It's not. It it really what these ancient cultures and a lot of the mystery schools was was really about was meaning, and the meaning was defined by showing what others have done and what you're capable of doing and the impact that you can have on your local your local world and maybe the greater world but it wasn't about leaving a mark it isn't about i'm going to cure everybody of cancer or anything mm, like that yeah yeah it's, yeah kind of like we talked about earlier yeah it's defining a meaning and when you look at the jungian archetypes most people are falling into the archetype of victim and they're victimized archetypes. And the reason why that is, is that we wear our victimhood on our sleeves, that we're an aggrieved population, that we've had a problem. And the thing is, there is an orgy of victimization of who can be more victimized. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but seriously, when you look at it, if you look at the general news as it, as it is today, it is a never-ending stop of who is a victim Who's the most victimized? And, yeah, I know. And, and then the guilt, <laughs> the guilt one must have that they're not as a big of a victim as somebody else. And, and this is all wrapped up into the fractured ego. It's wrapped up into the fractured individual. When you go to a university, you're supposed to be challenged. You're supposed to cry. You're supposed to be angry. You're supposed to be confused. You're supposed to rebel against what you think is the order. But you don't break things. You, you, you attack yeah, them. With no, your I, mind. I, I totally them. agree. And, and, and so um, if that's our future, Mike, what I'm saying is, and that's why we're doing this, if that's our future and a lot of the future is going to be technologists. And if you turn a blind eye to what we're talking about, that this is all kind of airy, fairy, new agey stuff. And Brian's probably one of those new agey guys. I'm not. All I'm basically telling you is there's a meaning to your life. You define it. It's not defined for you. And if you're not defining the true meaning of your life, it is being defined for you. And if you don't understand what your paradigm is, then it's been defined for you. If you don't educate that mm. paradigm, it's being defined. And that's yeah. all that Carl Jung was doing. And that's kind of where we are today. And it, it, it's universal. It's what you're doing at a, as a startup founder. It's what you're doing as a venture capitalist, as an investor. It's what you're doing raising your kids. It's what you're doing not wanting yeah, kids. Yeah, totally. All of these different things. Yeah, I, I, yeah. And I wonder, you know, as fast forward in the future, I wonder who's going to be today's equivalent of, of Carl Jung and Freud. So we'll see. So if you have any, any thoughts or suggestions, uh, this is for our listeners out there. We're, we're, we're all ears. We want to we present people and digest uh, stories and, and ideas from folks in the past or maybe in the future. But any recommendations or uh, preferences on who we'd like to cover, let us know. We'll happily 
dive into those folks and we'll like to continue this series i think i i've really enjoyed this one brian and there's so many more people out there that i think we should cover and this has been a good uh, rough draft for this sort of sketch or this uh this template but I, i'm really optimistic around the the value that this could provide I, I think it's it's really really interesting and um yeah we'll look forward to the next one i i, I agree mike and and I, I can't stress enough that this is about uh wanting people that wanting anybody who's listening to us, if you have a uh, contrarian view, I, I want to hear it. You know, this is all about, and, and I don't care if the view's off the wall. I don't care if the view is, you know, you're full of crap, Brian, whatever. Let's, let's, let's create a dialogue. Let's start looking at this stuff because now is probably the best time to start doing yeah. this for yourself. <laughs> I mean, I know. Forget, forget about the greater of society. Uh, Twitter and Facebook has got that covered, right? Uh, the, the the tar and feathering and the, and the, the, the pitchforks and fire uh, torches are already out and people are already doing the things they're going to do. But I'm saying for your own sanctity, look at the paradigms you've built, look at the concepts you've built, and little by little, try to move them one bit. And that is exposing yourself yep. to wider thought. It's the best yep, way I can exactly. say it. All right, buddy. Well, this has been a great one. Look forward to next week. Absolutely. And thank you Wonderful. all for listening. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have this up soon. All right. Take care. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. You know, for centuries, the ultra-wealthy have been putting their money where their mouths are by investing in fine wine. And now, with Vint, you can do that too. At Vint, we offer SEC-qualified investment opportunities of fine wine and spirits curated by our experts with portfolio managers. With Vint, you can invest and diversify into the most sought-after assets that have a history of price appreciation. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co.